Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kosima Ali. Hey, I'm Lakani Chowa, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, this is Vai Ramu, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Tasneem Chowdhury, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I am Nifwit Khan Marawat and you are listening to the Bereavement Room podcast with Kusuma Ali. Thank you for stopping by. I'm Lydia Akobale and you are listening to the amazing Bereavement Room podcast. Good evening friends, I'm Andrea. Thank you for listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Welcome back to the Bereavement Room podcast. It's the final episode of series one part two of my own story and lived experiences. Disclaimer notice, the experiences shared on Bereavement Room podcast are our own personal lived experiences and not that of others. I want to say to every listener and follower that disclose their toxic work environments to me anonymously, I see you and I hear you. You are not alone in this. It's crazy to think we spend our entire lifespan mostly at work, so it's mad to think that work environments are so unaccommodating, particularly when it comes to mental health and bereavement. They say you don't have to keep it together every single minute of the day. I agree, but sometimes that's just not possible in the workplace. If you're not seen keeping it together, showing any sign of emotion will impact you negatively. You can never bring your true self to the workplace, but know that speaking out is living your true authentic self in this very short life. Thank you to everyone that bravely shared their lived experiences of grief in the workplace following my post on Instagram about compassionate leave and the penultimate episode where I was given only one day. So much love to you all for writing in and sharing your experiences with me. Today's episode is hosted by Vaishnavi Ramu. Massive thanks to former guest Vaishnavi for coming back to hold the space for me. The music on Bereavement Room podcast was produced by Kay Solis. The creative and thumbnails were designed by Jay Hussain. I'm your guest, Kosima Ali. Thanks for listening. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Vaishnavi Ramu, um, I'm here today with Kalsima, um, and I was a guest actually earlier on um, in the season, um, um, and I was talking about my granddad, but today we have switched positions, and um, I'm going to be talking to Kalsima about her younger brother. Um, hello Kalsima, how are you doing? Hey Vaishnavi, it's great to be here with you today. It's the last recording. Yeah, yeah. How yeah. how has it been being um in on the other side really? Because you know, this is quite new for you, even though you've been done the podcast before, you're on the other side. What's that like? I'm not gonna lie, being in the guest seat, I have learned since doing this podcast that it's so different to hosting. I think when you host, you've got a lot more control. You steer the conversation. You produce the episodes. But when you're in the guest seat, it's a lot of mental gymnastics. Yes, that's a good phrase. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> mental gymnastics It is very much like that. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I think when you're the host as well, it's like, you know, you... Um, I don't want to say you're less... I think in a way you're less vulnerable, but, um, you know, you, like I say, you've True. got more control and you're steering, but you are less vulnerable and it's a whole new kind of side that you have to open up to when you're, you you are the guest. I mean, I certainly found that when I was on, so that must have been 
um, quite new for you, I guess, um, in a way, isn't it? It is, yeah, massively so, because I think since doing the podcast, I've appeared on other podcasts as guests, and I was like, oh my God, I was literally yeah. losing my shit in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. I... And then I remember going for a walk that day when we were only allowed out once a day during the lockdown. And I was like, oh, shit, how did all my guests like, how do they do that? How do they sit in that seat? Because they because to me, I didn't notice any nervousness or, you know, you guys really articulated yourself so beautifully. And I was like, how did they do that? And I realized that, wow, it's actually very hard sitting in the guest seat. Yeah, it is. Absolutely, it is. I think it involves like dissecting and um, unpicking at feelings you didn't, you may have never known that you had. And, and, uh, you know, I think particularly because this is focusing on, you know, black and ethnic minority um, communities and people from South Asian communities and all kinds of different communities, there's a whole other element there that isn't really explored in other podcasts. So I think that's what makes your one really unique and special. so yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really important that we talk about these things, and, and I'm really, really, I want to say personally, I'm so glad you're doing this, and it's so so brave of you doing this, Kalsima. Um, so I think it's very important to note that, and I, um, you should be very, very proud of yourself. Thank you. You're gonna make me cry. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my aim. That's yeah. not my aim. Wasn't going for that, but hey, crying's okay. Crying's fine. That's fine. Very, very valid. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm super proud. Um, and I think, obviously, I mean, you've, you've had a lot, I think, to deal with, I think, in grief in recent years. Um, and I think um, you're, about your dad, particularly, I know your dad was very recent, um, but we're, we're obviously not going to talk about him today. Um, but you, I think you've decided, is, that, is it true you decide to leave that for the end of season two? Yeah, because, you know, my I know everyone knows that my dad has died and people want to know what happened. Yeah. I, I, and it is correct, yes. I have made the decision to leave that for the end of this year. Yeah. And that's because, you know, it will be coming up to one year, whereas right now I'm only five months in and I don't actually know how my dad died. So uh, there's a lot of context that's missing from that story. So I'm going to, uh, I don't think I'm ready for that quite yet. Yeah. So, so yeah season two yeah absolutely (laughs) season two yeah keep keep your ears and eyes open for that everyone um I I think you're very right though Kalsama I think I think the the most important thing about grief is that you have to talk about it when you're ready um and I think you know people I think people asking you about your dad's stuff is very it's absolutely fine and when that's going to be but I think obviously have to remember he's your dad and really huge part of your life um and it's it's a real shame you know that they're still investigating that I think in that this day and age that's really a real shame but um it's when you're ready isn't it and I'm I'm, and you'll come to that when you're ready but today is about your brother um who very sadly died um was a couple of years ago now um about two and a half years ago um January 2018 yeah yeah um so I mean whenever you're ready I mean would you like to tell us what happened or um you know how did that come about Yeah, I mean, it takes me back to, (sighs) he died in January 2018, and actually it's quite blurry, but um, I had just returned from Copenhagen, so I was settled in a new job in London, right? Right. And um, all I remember is getting a phone call uh, at my desk, 
So I work in an open plan office in marketing at the time. And my older sister and me have a bit of a, I'm going to say a little bit of a difficult relationship, but when it comes to communicating. So I often don't hear from her unless there's an emergency or something's gone wrong. Okay. Yeah. So I was at my desk just doing my work and I see that she's calling my phone. So I'm thinking, why is she calling me? She never phones me somebody's died my dad had died that's what I was thinking at the time yeah yeah and then she's like where are you and I'm like oh I'm just at my desk you know I'm at work where else would I be in a midweek like and then she's like okay well I need you to move away from the desk because there's something that I have to tell you and um yeah like can you stay on the phone and I was like I'll call you back let me see if I can find a meeting room so I, I went into one of the pods, which is one of the meeting rooms, and I called her back and she said, OK, I just need you to be calm. But basically, he's not doing too well. He's in hospital. Okay. He, he's got some kind of infection. And just for context, my younger brother was born with Down syndrome and autism. Yeah. He was nonverbal, just for the listeners so they know. Yeah. Uh, and he, in that summer in 2017, he had an infection and they had to drain his chest. So my my sister is explaining that story. Well, she's explaining to me on the phone what's happened and that I need to get down to the hospital and go see him and spend time. And, you know, um, because it just came out of nowhere. You know, I would usually visit him because he's in a care home. I'd usually visit him about once every two weeks, maybe at that time. Um, because as, with my brother's care, it's, got, it's quite complicated. I was his power of attorney, I guess you could say. I, had, um, I was in charge of his mental capacity for about a decade with my dad. Wow, it's um, a long time. A very long time. And um, we all had a stake in the way that we'd look after him and cared for him. But when he um, stopped living with us and went into a care home and I think I was maybe a young adult at the time and my parents were getting so much older and they were really struggling and mm-hmm. my sister wanted to move away from this stereotype of us not accessing external care yeah uh, particularly within South Asian communities, yeah, they're like, yeah. we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. And it took her much persuasion to get my parents to, pers- you know, let's lean on external care. And we phased, did that in a phase. And then he went into a private care home and he lived fine for a decade, no illnesses, nothing, took really good care of him. It was fantastic. And I was very much involved in that care after my mum died with mm-hmm. my dad. But of course, you know, I was also grieving because my mum had died in in that time. So I'd moved to, I made a decision to move to Copenhagen because I needed to do something for myself. You know, it was just me and my dad living together. I'd had like seven years of deep being in a deep pit of darkness and I needed to do something for myself. So I got a really good opportunity to move to Copenhagen. And I, I realized I'm digressing here a little bit from that phone call. But I took so much of his care that it then got passed on to my sister for for certain reasons because I had left. But also they were trying to bring him back into borough so the council could save money because it was expensive. He was out of borough in a very expensive care home. Of course, yeah. 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 So that phone call, you know, I'd only just returned from Copenhagen. I was only visiting once every two weeks. And she was like, you know, it's not serious. He's had a chest strain. He had an infection. So I go down to the hospital 
and this is the only visit that I remember that I was there pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. The one visit that sticks in my mind, and it was probably the first one, I walk into the room and I see the carer has the bat, his back to my brother and my brother's just rocking back and forth in his bed and he just looks so poorly, so drained with all these wires plugged into his chest and his wrists and stuff. Um, I don't know what you call them, but um, he just looked so like, I don't want to use the word dead, but like his eyes just look really dead. He'd, you know, he'd had this major chest drain operation, and the carer was just banging on his laptop with his back to my brother, and I was like, okay, fine, whatever. So I walk in and I say hello, and I'm really polite, and I just go over to my brother and you know hug him, and all I can really remember is just staying there for about six, seven hours, kind of just sitting with him, but he's not sleeping from what I'm told he's not sleeping he doesn't look like he's slept right that's quite concerning for you then obviously you coming in and finding your brother in this state isn't it I mean you obviously want to do as much as you can yeah I'm really like for me I think it annoyed me the carer had his back to my brother while he's rocking back and forth when he should be you know if you know uh, children, adults that ha- are non-verbal with autism and Down syndrome, they're very affectionate. Yeah, yeah. And they're very also very clear if they don't want anyone near them. So, you know, I just found that a bit strange and I was like, well, what's the point of you being here then? But obviously I didn't say that and that would piss my sister off because... My yeah, sister, of course. <laughs> my, my sister works in the system and me and her have very different feelings about cert- certain things uh, the way that it works in society so that's probably why me and her don't always get on yeah but um it I you know I was just rubbing his back and I see he couldn't he was not sleeping it you can see it from his face so I was like okay and I start singing this lullaby that my mum used to sing to us to get us to sleep in Bengali yeah oh that's lovely that's really sweet yeah, and I, I don't know why that came into my mind, but it used to get us off to sleep when we were younger. So I started singing to him in Bengali, and then I just got on the edge of the bed, and I was rubbing his back, and then I could see he was starting to relax. And then he, he stopped rocking back and forth, and he just lay down in his bed, and you could tell he was drifting off to sleep as I was singing to him and patting his back. And, you know, um, because they like that. They like touch and feeling, and um, and he just fell asleep then. He fell asleep and he was fine and he fell asleep and I was so pleased that he fell asleep. And then the nurse walked in at that point. Now, I have to say those nurses, look they seemed really great. They were really good because I'm always very, you know, I'm quite critical of health professionals. But they were really great, the nurses that were working with him. And they were like, oh, I'm really happy to see that he's fallen asleep. Yeah. And, you know, he's had something to eat. And she was just checking, really. And she was just like, you know, he's been so poorly. And I'm so glad that he's, you know, getting some sleep right now. So he'd fallen asleep. I didn't want to disturb him. It's time for me to leave now because it's going like midnight or coming up to midnight. And I turn around and I say to the carer, Oh, you know, there's like unopened pot food stuff here. Everything's a bit of a mess. Like, can we just make sure this stuff is tidied up? Stuff that he hasn't eaten, thrown in the bin. Like, you know, and I was I was tidying up as well at that point too. And I was just chatting to the carer. And he was like, yeah, I'm going off my shift. Someone else will be coming very shortly to replace me. Because he can't be left alone, my brother, in the in the hospital ward. Of on course, his own. of course. Yeah, and he's round the clock care. Absolutely. Yeah. So this carriage just seemed a bit, I don't know, 
he was a bit too absorbed in his laptop, I would say. So, like, I was just like, yeah, you know, tidying up, sorting out the food pots and stuff like that, putting things away. And then I said goodbye. My brother was asleep. And then I'd left. And that's the only visit I remember from that summer very clearly. And it was the first visit. But he eventually got discharged. He recovered. He went home. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were there visiting him and he'd recovered and he was OK. And my dad was there and everyone, you know, South Asian families, particularly Bangladeshi families, just in and out, in and out. You know, yeah, absolutely. Around, around the clock and it can be chaotic. But yeah, um, yeah I think um, sorry to interrupt. I no, just um, I just wanted to um, say there, I think what you said about kind of South Asians really feeling like they just they have to do everything themselves you know and I really really think that is an issue like I think like our community almost see it as a failure if we like put one of our children into care or we get extra help from you know the NHS or something like that it's seen as like we're failing and it's really really not and I'm really glad that you made that um, that decision was made for your brother to get that care because it's so so important um, and it is very it's very much stigmatized um, and I think you know I remember when my and my brother was diagnosed with ADHD and yeah it's very um, any kind of help that we got for him it was uh, the extended family was like why just you know why you're just not he's just naughty he's just not playing up and I absolutely hate that kind of attitude it's mm. like these are people with real um disabilities and of course you know your brother being autistic and nonverbal, like that's very very serious and he needs all the care he can get and if professionals can maybe give that and ease the kind of pressure off you your sister your parents that's really important isn't it absolutely 100 percent. you hit the nail on the head and i think that our communities need to you know stop stigmatizing us and you know for doing that because we do need to rely on the system because the system is already failing us because they don't know how to work with us or how to steer or gear the services to our needs yeah it, it, it needs to be shaped to our needs and they they don't know so they often just like sometimes the system's like well they've got lots of family leave them to it so can you then blame the system if we don't if we, we don't go out there and fight for ourselves but it's um it's a, a double-edged sword almost. We need to do the work and the system also needs to do the work to better understand what our needs are for, for our communities when it comes to care. And yeah, I'm thankful to my sister because really my older sister pushed that from, yeah. the, from the beginning of day. You know, I was very young at the time. So I, I, I thank my sister for that. And my parents then eventually came around to understanding what it meant to rely on external care. Yeah, yeah, and I'm really, I'm really glad that um, that was obviously done for your brother. Um, and I, I think when it obviously uses the pressure off your parents, as you said, isn't it? Um, but obviously, your brother did come home. He recovered, um, and you said he was well looked after, isn't it? At that point. Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about this second care home because I'd only just returned back to London. Yeah. But um, I had issues with him coming back into Borough because when you move someone that has additional needs and is non-verbal and been living somewhere quite happily for a decade right and yeah. move them out of their environment it's a really poor on their mental health because they don't understand what's going on of course of course they, they can't just adjust they're not like us they don't have the um 
they have the understanding. I guess I can't articulate it, but you know, you really have to prep them and phase them into the new environment. And that's what my brother particularly needed. And I think it just happened automatically. But obviously, my sister then became power of attorney for his mental capacity and stuff. And she was like, it's better if he comes into Borough because, yeah, they need to save money, but it's closer to home. And, you know, dad will be able to see him more often because dad's on the decline and he can't do those long tube journeys anymore. So it, this is better. And, you know, we've all got cars and stuff. So... And I, and I get that, but for me, the way I see it, the way I process it, his decline was when he moved to the next care home. Okay, yeah. That's was that the way what, I process it. Yeah, and w- what was different, um, Kalsma, between these kind of two care homes? Was it like a night and day, or was it a more subtle kind of difference between the care? Well, I mean, they tried to do like for like, but I'm not sure how many holidays or activities he had because in the previous care home, oh my God, his social life was better than mine, Vajnavi. He was going on holiday everywhere. He was on social events, swimming, musical events, concerts. Wow, that's great. That's wonderful. Yeah, and he had a very, he just lived a very normal life like you and I, right? And, um... I'd never seen him be ill once there, but my sister said, you don't know half of the story because when they, when I had moved, they did an assessment and apparently new management had took over just as I had, was preparing to leave the UK. And I remember that because I would always, I wondered where that guy had gone because we'd often call and visit and stuff and he wasn't there. Yeah. A new management had taken over in the previous place. And I just missed it because I just left the country. And I think when new management takes over in any care home, there are changes and there are adjustments. And then the people living in those care homes have to get used to those new personalities and the new faces and the new the people and the new schedule. So maybe something did happen in the previous care home towards the end, but I missed it because I'd left the UK. And my, my sister says, well, they were putting him on medication and the medication was too high. Oh, goodness. yeah, that, that, that's the last thing you want, you know, getting these kind of things wrong. They're very, very important. Yeah, and I just felt a bit deflated in that point. I was like, that can't be right, because in those 10 years, he was fine. I went to the meetings. People from the council came to the meetings, his reviews. And she goes, I think it happened when the new management took over and um, or the new carers took over. Do you had just left? And because he had everything there, like literally everything. He had a great social life. So I don't know what happened. And anyway, they were preparing to move him back to Borough. And I guess the difference is that although the care, the care was good. To me, it looked like it was good, but he wasn't going on holiday. I don't know how many activities he had. I think he had very fewer activities. And he was always desperate to go outside. Like, as soon as you would meet him, he'd just grab his shoes and his socks and his coat because he's just desperate to go outside. So I don't really know how much of that happened. And I don't want to say too much because my sister was more involved in that. And I guess maybe these things did happen, but I wasn't seeing it when I was there or I wasn't informed because I was removed from the situation at that point. Yeah, yeah. I think it that's difficult because obviously... When I think when a family member leaves or particularly when you leave um, and you come back um, again, uh, I think this happens in any family, particularly if you're South Asian, they always make you feel bad if you're like going somewhere and coming back. And yeah, she did. She made me feel bad. 
Yeah, and that's exactly what your sister did. Um, and they're like, well, you weren't here, you don't know. Or um, I've been doing this, I've been doing that, where have you been? And it becomes, it, it just becomes its own issues. Like, why weren't you here? Or you don't know what I've been doing. And, and that's just a burden that no one really needs, isn't it? Massively. I felt so burdened and I felt very guilty. And I yeah. was, and I, you know, I'd gone to all these Christmas parties and was there and my dad was there. We all... Uh, he was fine. I don't know what happened in, when he moved to the new care home in the last two years. Or I don't think it was even two years that he was there. Um, you know, it's all a bit confusing for me. And when you're removed from the situation and you're no longer power of mental capacity of someone, you can't really comment too much. Uh, and my older sister being older, I, you know, I there's a bit of hierarchy in my family. Me being the youngest, I have a less of a voice, I guess you could say. Of course. Yeah. yeah, and I, you know, I'm going to fast forward. All I remember next is it was January 2018. And um, in January 2018, uh, we were well into the new year. He died at the end of January. So, again, I'm at work in this same job. And I get that phone call from my, sis from my sister. And, of course, I think my dad has died. But he hasn't died. But I don't know why I always think that. Because, obviously, I live with my dad and then I'm at work. And I don't know, you know, I don't know, has he had a fall or something like that. But it's nothing to do with my dad. My dad's fine. <laughs> She's like, I need you to move away from your desk. I need you to be calm and not be mad. And, you know, I just really need you to listen to me. So, I've still got her on the phone. And I go into the meeting room. And she's like, he's got leukemia. Oh, leukemia. That's very serious. Yeah. So I'm just like, this is a downward spiral for us. It feels like everything it just gets worse. So I'm just sitting there and I'm a bit silent on the phone. And I was like, how can that be? That can't be possible. He has regular doctor's appointments. That yeah. I, that is not making any sense but then I'm like oh well it's fine it's just leukemia because there's loads of clinical trials people survive leukemia and they live normal lives yeah all the time all the time yeah all the time and it's not cancer it's a blood uh, cancer cell disease so and there's, there's so much stuff out there and so I'm like oh it's fine he'll be fine and she's like no he's not I've had a conversation with a consultant and I've tried my best. And you see, the thing is, my sister is a bit of a negotiator. She's amiable and she's like the voice of reason where I'm not. I'm going to yeah. fight and I'm going to challenge and I'm going to shout and we're the complete yeah. polar opposite. So she's like, I've had the conversations with the consultants. They're not going to do anything for him. They want to, he, he's going to die. So, you know, if you want to speak to the consultant, you can go meet with them in the hospital. You can have a phone call. They're waiting for your call. They know. And, you know, every family member was informed to have that conversation with the consultant because, you know, my brother might have been my brother, but he was also like a child. It was like my baby had died. And the reason for that being is, yes, because he was nonverbal and he's aut autistic and Down syndrome. And it wasn't your typical brother-sister relationship. We all had a stake in his care at one yeah. point in his life. So I, my heart just sank. Yeah. My heart sank in that moment. And I... And I was calm in that phone call. And she could hear that I was silent. And she, and she was like, okay, then. Well, here's the number. You got the number. You got the consultant's name. All right. You know. And, and then before she hung up, she said, you know, I think you've got a bit more of a persuasive and not harsher argument uh, when you're speaking. 
So, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> whatever that means. What she's basically trying to say is, I'm probably a bit more of a bitch compared to her, and I'll have words <laughs> with the consultant, whereas she can't do that because she's not that person. She's the PR person, the politician, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so I was like, okay, I hear what you're saying. You really want me to push for what you've already asked for that they've said to you absolutely no way so I hung up and I called the consultant and I'm on the phone to her for about good 40 minutes yeah understandably so Calcibo because you're at work and you get this phone call and not only do you find out that well first of all that your brother's got leukemia but that this was something that was probably and was missed um, but that he's probably going to die. I mean, that's a lot to take in a phone call. And it seems like your sister was just kind of like, well, this is what it is. I'm going to leave it to you to push for it. Um, and that must have been really difficult for you. And I'm sure that phone call with a consultant was not easy either. No, it wasn't. And I think my sister's tired because she's done so. She, I can't underrate my sister. She's done a lot. But in order, of course. For, her, but yeah. for, in order for her to do a lot, she has to put on a game face. Because if you go in like a bull in a china shop, you're not going to get results. And that's why she is wired the way she is. Whereas I am more, you know, and I think at this point she's given up and she's tired because she's just dealing with so much. Um, but she was very much as you just described like I've tried it's your turn it's everyone else's turn so I'm on the phone for 40 minutes and um, the consultant's just like you know I think he had it since he was a child I was like how can that be that can't be possible and she's just like look leukemia is you know there's a correlation between leukemia and down syndrome apparently there's links okay um and i've seen that somewhere on the internet there is i think if you go in my clinic they've got a clear outline of what what research has been done to see what those links are yeah we, we, we think it might be since childhood but he's had so many blood tests because if you're non-verbal you will have extra checkups and stuff and i just can't remember him ever really being very ill i mean he used to always have a runny nose when he was a kid but i just couldn't like to me it just didn't make sense and i didn't understand how this happened and i'm on the phone to this consultant and she's like there's nothing we can do is like, what about the clinical trial she goes no there's we can do and it's better for him in his condition to not have any of these treatments because it will make him worse and also because he's non-verbal yeah yeah Uh, and and what that means is what that what she meant by that I think is and I I've seen it before with doctors and consultants maybe not nurses when he's previously you know been around medical professionals they don't know how to deal with non-verbal patients they don't because it makes their job harder it does whether those medics like to admit it or not it makes their life harder when you've got a patient in front of you that's non-verbal that doesn't understand and doesn't have mental capacity it's much harder for them to treat that patient when they can't even speak for themselves right yeah Yeah. so she she made that decision i know she did from her tone because she was just like well i'm not going to treat someone that you know can't doesn't have a mental capacity and you know he's down syndrome and autistic look at him he's better off not having this treatment and that is wrong you can't treat people with disabilities and additional needs like that they still have a voice absolutely and I'm really really glad you raised that because I I I completely agree I think um 
a lot of people, I think particularly in the context of COVID-19, we've realised that the people, a lot of the people keeping our society alive right now are the carers and the people who work with people with disabilities and different um, kinds of abilities. And I think there is a disconnect between the carers, the nurses and the doctors and the surgeons. I think often because they don't deal with these people as often, they either just want to delegate it or they just don't want to deal with it. And I think it, it is just as important for doctors, de dentists, surgeons to be trained to deal with these kind of people. I mean, they're healthcare professionals. Um, so I, I completely agree. I think that is a really huge problem. And you're right, disabled people do have a voice. And um, it's it's very hurtful for the disabled person and that person's family, and, and in this case, you and your sister, um, Kalsima, that, to hear that, no, they've just given up. Um, because, he, as you said, he was like a child to you, wasn't he? Um, because of the care and how you took care of him. And that's very painful to hear that um, that kind of rejection from the system like that. It was massively rejecting. And in that moment, I realised that there was nothing that I could do. Um, and although my sister had left it to me, and it's so true what you say, that those surgeons and those consultants and the doctors don't know their ass from their elbow when it comes to dealing with anyone with different abilities, uh, disabilities, disabled, non-verbal, right? They just, I don't, I don't know if it's because they haven't had much interaction with them or if there are more specialized people that deal with that but you you have to get an advocate for anyone that's listening that might resonate with what I'm saying here you've got to get an extra advocate that's going to fight for your rights when you're speaking to these health professionals because with the family they can just say no we're not treating you whose decision is it at the end of the day it's not mine or my sister's it's in the in the health professional's hands so yeah. what could I do what could I do in that moment I was helpless yeah, and I'm really glad you bring up the advocate bit as well because I, I think that's very necessary. But some people, some people can't, you know, uh, or they just don't know. They don't know their full rights and that's this information. It. That's it. That's it. We don't know our rights, and I didn't. We didn't even know our rights, and it's only until Jeff got investigated that we were like, uh, okay. So, which now brings me to, yeah, that phone call was done, and I. <laughs> Yeah, and my sister's like, well, well, there's nothing we can do. He's going to die. But um, she's like, all you can do now is not dwell on this, but spend as much time with him as possible. Because when he was born, they said that he his life would be premature anyway because he has Down syndrome and that he would die young. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and that was a fact. But I wasn't expecting this because he was only 30 years old. So it's just... Uh, you know and any age doesn't matter any age it always hurts it always, it always hurts. hurts yeah it does and he was like my baby you know I think in order to paint this picture you know getting someone ready for school taking them out wheeling them out you know <laughs> taking them out and about dressing them uh, changing them feeding them cooking for them we all had a stake in his care so, you know, we had to help our parents. We couldn't just leave it to our parents who are not born in the UK and don't understand the system in the way that we do. So, it, we, you know, it was like my baby had died. And I, well, I just did what my sister said. She was like, just spend time with him. And so we, I spent time with him and I was with him after work and I was with him every weekend. But, you know, from that phone call to the day he died, it was maybe three weeks. Mm -hmm. And that's really not long at all, like weeks is nothing, really. 
No, it's not. And it's always, they always say it's six months. It's never six months. It's days to weeks. It's lies when they say that. In my personal experience anyway, it's never been months. So the day that he died was a Saturday and it was the 28th of January. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, it's my shift to go visit him. Because, you know, I'd been going to visit him and taking him outside to the park because he loved the outdoors. Of course, and he loved, of course. And he, and he loved music, you know. You could always find his ear to the radio. He just loved music and Aww. and anything to do with light, like lights. Um, and music for him was like a really big passion in his life uh, from a very young age. And so I would often spend time with him and I'd sit with him and... You know, we'd run around the garden and he'd be in the wheelchair and he just enjoyed being outside in the nature, um, which I think is very telling. I think anyone that has, you know, family, well, I don't need to tell people this because they know, but people with disabilities and additional needs, they often love to be in the outdoors. And when they really crave for that, my brother craved for that. I think that's very telling. Um, and they, they should be spending time outdoors because of nature course. is good for you. It's, yeah. it's very good for your health. And I don't, we don't, maybe we don't fully know why, but we always feel good when we're outside, right? Yeah, so, yeah, we do. I mean, I think as human beings, we, you know, definitely should be outside yeah. as much as possible. And I completely understand you wanting to spend as much time with them outside as possible, and particularly up to the day he died. Um, but yeah, you know, so the day he died, um, it was his shift, you said, and... It was my shift and I was getting ready to go, but I was running late. Yeah. And um, I um, I get a phone call just as I'm about to get into my car. Uh, my sister's crying and she's like, you need to come to the care home. So I was like, okay, why? And it sounds like a stupid question because I'm on my way there anyway. Yeah. And she's like, he's died. He's gone. And then I was just like, okay, so I get in the car and I drive to the care home and my sisters are there, the carers are there, but my dad's not there. Um, and, my, and then my brother-in-law's there and my nieces and nephews are arriving. There's an ambulance parked outside. So I come in and I see him there. Obviously, he's lying there in his bed and, um, yeah, he's, you know, I, I literally just break down on him. So, like, I put my face to his and I'm literally, like, I guess there's no other way to describe it as I was just a complete mess in that moment um, because he's there and he's obviously dead. So, yeah. yeah. And, I, and, you know, everyone's crying and blah, blah. And my, everyone was like, well, Carla, let's go and get dad. And so my brother went to go and get well, my brother was on his way and he was bringing my dad and they sat him down outside and they're like, you know, my, my brother gave him this really good pep talk and even the ambulance people were hearing the, this talk, all the carers and everything and everyone could hear it and they were like, okay, like, I can't remember his exact words but it was like a speech. <laughs> and, oh, wow. Like a really emotional speech and that really got me upset as well because he's going to hear for the first time that his son has died and he's going to see that his son is dead. So, you know, um, he he delivered the speech to my dad about my dad first coming here to the UK and that he's seen a lot and done a lot and that he'll be able to cope with what he's about to see now, that his childhood yeah. has died. And my dad's just a bit like, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, I can't really read the expression on my dad's face. I think he, 
if I was to describe it, he looked a bit scared. And so then he walked in and then, uh, you know, he sees that my, my brother has died. And um, he just kind of looks at everybody. That's all I can remember. He kind of just looks up at everyone. And then he puts his face down a little bit. And I think he is emotional for all of maybe two or three minutes because he's a little bit confused. But he knows that his son has died and he can see that his son has died. And he, he prays. Of course, yeah. But it's hard to know. It's hard to know what my dad was thinking in that moment because it was very chaotic. There were just so many people in that room and he cried. But I actually think that the talk that my brother gave to my dad before he went in the room really helped the situation because had he not done that and walked in, it would have been very chaotic. Of course, yeah. I mean, sometimes you do need someone to kind of just prep them you know i am glad your dad caught that instead of just going in and being finding out all this at once you know um so it's really good your dad got that but obviously yeah i think him kind of walking into the room like that and looking around and doing the prayer like i think it's it's just shock really and it's his way of trying to deal with it but also his way of trying to be strong i guess as the father of the family um, yeah, very strong. Very, very strong. Just thinking, okay, you know, that was really nice what my brother did for my dad there. It was really beautiful the way that he explained. And and I think my dad pro processed very well, actually, in the end. But then they were like, let's take him home because this is a lot of information. So I was asked to take my dad home, but I was a mess. And my sister was like, are you kidding? She She's not going to be able to drive him home safely. We need someone else that's not going to be a liability in this moment. And it was true. I don't think I would have been able to drive my dad home in that moment because i was literally shaking of course so, of course so my brother took him home my brother-in-law took him home and i don't remember the rest of the day i think we were praying there and the carers were there and you know there's a lot of logistics and the ambulance there and they obviously didn't resuscitate because of the nature of you know they're not gonna resuscitate him he was dying um mm -hmm. the ambulance eventually left and um yeah, and then uh, the undertakers took his body away and stuff. Uh, um, and obviously, I, you'd, you'd have to organise the funeral and stuff, isn't that? Which is really the next the next part of this. Yeah, the Muslim funerals are really quick, and they're really I don't want to say boring, but they're very quick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, they're within twenty four or forty eight hours, and uh, this time we didn't do it in East London Mosque because I think you're people will have listened to the previous episode my mum's funeral was at east london mosque we kept it local because we don't live anywhere near east london so mm -hmm. we kept it local it was very small it was a very small gathering you know all the carers were there and stuff but um i went to the burial right mm -hmm. so you know they had the janazah and stuff like that you know and i'm going to go to the burial and i knew that there will be no women present at the burial because of patriarchy not because of islam let's face it the entire globe is play plagued with patriarchy and for whatever reason like it's very prevalent within our community it's very patriarchal so the there was no women present at the burial i did my prayers at home i went to the burial and I stood at a distance but for me because I never went to my mum's burial because she wasn't buried in the UK it was really important for me like for you know the relationship that I had with my brother for me to just see that coffin go in the ground it might sound strange but it was the finality of just seeing that yeah he died and that's that final moment 
Yeah, and I think it is for a lot of people, um, Kalsama, you know, kind of being at the funeral, seeing that person, um, whatever religion you are, if you're Hindu, the ashes burn, if you're Muslim or Christian, obviously there's the burial. I think that final image is where it really hits people. Um, and I think just to touch upon what, what you said about the patriarchy as well, I think absolutely it's everywhere on the globe, um, you know, no matter what religion, race uh, you are, um, it's the same as well. My community, I'm, I'm, I'm from a Hindu family and, you know, it's always the sun that takes the ashes to the sea. But why? Why? Why is it always the males? I mean, women play just as important mm. life. Um, and in, in particular, it was clear that in the case of your brother's life, it was your sister and you that really did so much for him. So, um, yeah, I think that it's a lot. There's a lot of issues that we have to unpack. And I hope society changes how how we deal with certain things, like even like at weddings and funerals and stuff. Um, but it, it will take time. And I know that a lot of <laughs> I know particularly a lot of men, cisgendered men will not like that. They're not going to like it. And, um, you know, you've listened to the podcast. You've been listening to all the of episodes. Of course, of course. And, and I've, in great detail, tried to explore it. And I've had my moments of tangents and rants about it. And I've tried to explore the funeral process with everyone because we are from all different communities and religions and stuff. So I was trying to work it out. And then I just concluded this entire world is plagued by men. So, yes <laughs> very very right yeah absolutely right <laughs> so I just concluded well that's the conclusion that's that's why the, these things happen at funerals sometimes and yeah and I saw that final moment and I walked away I got in my car and I went home and I cried and you know I I, I have many photographs of my brother of him on holiday activities from when he was a baby because he was so cute he was so adorable course, like yeah. and, and, and everyone loved being around him all the carers and they always took a shine to him so there's so many photographs of him on my fridge in photo albums and you know I created something that day and yeah I just kind of went off into my own little reflection but I think after that day I compartmentalized because I had to return to work yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, of course, we spoke about this a little bit before, I mean, Kalsama, um, you have to, like many people, we have to return to work at some point. But for you, this was particularly difficult, wasn't it? I mean, what did that look like for you? Um, so I got compassionate leave. It's five days where I was working. Five days? Yeah. That's not long. <laughs> I thought it would be longer than that. Wow. It, that's not very compassionate. No, no, you just, that's brilliant. I love it. That's not very compassionate. I wish I could say the name of who I worked with at that time, but I'm not going because I got a lot of money and I think they'd like to see me. So <laughs> uh, I always stay clear of names. But um, yeah, it wasn't very compassionate of them. And But that was their p policy. That was their bereavement policy that it's five days. Um, and I think it was statutory or something. And um the thing is, I only took three days because the other two days I was on annual leave anyway that I had pre-booked. Okay. And it, fe yeah. it fell into the same week. Okay. So I only really took three days of that. And yeah, the other two days I'm, I'm just thinking, you only really got three, you didn't get five. They just decided to count the other two days as compassionate leave, which again, not very compassionate. So, so you had to go back to work pretty soon, I think that, isn't it? Um, yeah. Considering what happened. Yeah, I went back a week later. 
and it's an open plan office of 40 people working in marketing and communications. Now, I need to describe this office to you. Everyone knows everyone's business, even if you think that they don't. Mm-hmm. And it's a typical Marcom's office. People talk and it was becoming a toxic environment because of leadership issues anyway at that point. So it's becoming a sour place to work. But anyway, if something happens, everyone hears about it. And of course, I'd said to my line manager, like, I didn't particularly get on with my line manager. We were very civil, but I guess this comes into play about how I feel about people managers. But, you know, she was just very sort of generically compassionate, I guess you could say. You know, she sent the generic flowers. Yeah, was she a bit of a Karen? Would you say she was a bit of a Karen? Like, Um, or Karen vibes? (laughs) <laughs> a salon made in Chelsea, Karen, right? Oh, and I'm going to wow. put it made in Chelsea, yeah. And she's not even from made in Chelsea. She was from the seaside somewhere, but obviously she'd been living in London for so long, like in and around the Chelsea Fulham area. So she was like a full-on Prosecco drinking. Oh, yes, I love Prosecco and I love drinking people under the table. And this is what I'm about. And I kiss all the boys uh, you know all the boys that I work with and this is who I am and you know and she was very much that type of person and I sound like a bitch saying that but I'm just gonna say it she was very middle class and white and so me and her are chalk and cheese anyway because uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm opposite of that so like, of, course, of course yeah completely different backgrounds and that itself is a big clash without all those extra fluff that she's bringing so that obviously mm-hmm. you had to deal with that and um you know friendships in the workplace like they're very they can be very contentious you know people at you think your your friends at work are really not your friends the next minute no they're not they're not and I had a great time working there but I think as soon as my brother died and when I returned to the office two of my stakeholders came up to me and what I mean by stakeholder for those that don't know what that means um, they were the people that I did campaigns for to deliver their objectives and their projects. So one of them I was quite, you know, I have to be friendly with my stakeholders because I work with them. So one of them ran up to me and she was like, right, let's go in the pod. Let's hash this out. And she's like, right, you need to call the EAP number and for mental health and for you. And do you know what? Let me help you. Let's get a schedule and do what's right for you. And, you know, do something nice for you, whatever that means. But she was just literally word vomit in that moment. Now, she was a bit of a character, I would say, in that office. And I always appreciated her. But that's not what I need when I've just gotten to my desk five minutes like can you just give me like an hour at least to breathe but I think her intentions were really good uh I I don't think they were you know her being insensitive I think she just really wanted to help but she could see from my response that actually we're not gonna be putting a timetable to schedule in my mental health in that moment which is what I think she wanted to do yeah it sounds very much like that yeah yeah and then the other stakeholder was like oh um can I hug you and I wasn't particularly close to her we didn't really speak and she's like oh can I hug you I feel like you need a hug I just found that all very weird in an open plan office and fair enough we hugged and stuff but everyone's watching like everyone's watching it almost feels performative doesn't it yeah yeah, and they can hear you. And my manager's just sitting there at her desk, and she's clearly blurted with the big mouth that she has. She clearly, the whole office knew, but they played this conspiracy of silence, apart from those two stakeholders that didn't play the conspiracy of silence, because they didn't know that my brother was dying. They didn't know he was ill, so how did they find out? Yeah, I mean, and that must that's just another thing that no one should have to deal with. Um, these things have to be dealt 
with a lot of dignity in it. And I think in this situation, you got everything but dignity um, from your your line manager and from those stakeholders. Um, mm. And it gets that, worse. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think no one should have to to deal with those kind of people, but um, often you do, don't you? You do. And what I think my line manager should have done was like, right, let's go in the pod. Okay, I don't have the words, and I know that your brother has died. Da 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 da. I don't have the words, but I want to help you. Let's go speak to HR. Let's get you know, if you want to call the number, it's there. We're not going to push it down your throat. Um, let's do a phased return. Like, ask me what's going to help me. Nope, didn't get any of that. Got a conspiracy of silence. And when I did try and ask, you know, I, I had a smile on my face the whole time. It's like nothing ever happened. That's how I walked in. Because I couldn't have these conversations with these people. They just didn't have a clue. And they didn't want to bring it up because they felt uncomfortable and they didn't want to make me upset or whatever. But everyone in that office, most people knew what was happening. And they just totally avoided it. And so I just, you know, when someone's avoiding it, you then pretend also that it's not happening. And she didn't have those conversations with me. And when I asked to work from home at least once or twice a week because it was a tech job, I could work anywhere in the world. I could work work from a barn if I wanted to. But she just wasn't having it. She goes, why? I need to give a business case. Like, why do you need to work from home? I was like, because I'm tired of putting a smile on my face and I'm finding this all very invasive and I'm struggling and I would like to work from home like at least once a week. But she just wasn't having it. That's terrible. And that's really, really, I think, uh, like outright ignoring your feelings and the time and space that you need. Um, and it's not, it's not as if your job is like physical. You can, you can very, very easily at do. All. Uh, at all. It's online. Yeah, yeah. It's all online. You can do that at home. Um, and do you think, I mean, obviously you've um, you said that you're very outspoken and confident and you will just say what's on your mind, which I think is great. Um, do you think... Mm people were not used to hearing that from a woman and particularly a woman of colour in your workplace? Or do you think um, race didn't really come into it that much, in your opinion? Uh, with my line manager, I think race came into it. I actually think she's a closet racist. I, I don't think she even realises like her micro. Many people don't. Yeah. And I, she was one of them. Perfect example. She just didn't. Because actually it was a very diverse office and it was quite community felt. But my team wasn't diverse. Um, apart from me and one other person who I don't wish to name here. Um, but she just wasn't. We were polar opposites of her. She was hard work. And I actually think race did come into it a lot. She just didn't get me and I didn't get her. And she didn't care. And the only thing that she really did for me in that time was that there was enough field on site in this very prestigious place that we worked in, enough field gym, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... I started going to the gym because I couldn't be in that office. It was, you know, I was very outspoken and confident, but then I just kind of went into my shell, I think, in that moment because I just had enough of it. And it was becoming a bit of a bullying environment. People stopped inviting me to lunches. I mean, they would invite me to begin with, but it was very much like, I'm not going to sit here and laugh with you because my brother just died and you lot are not mentioning it. You're not asking me anything. Say something, anything. It could be, I don't have the words. Do you want to talk about it? It was none of that. So I was like, why am I going to want to have lunch with you while you're sitting there laughing about nonsense? Because my world is upside down right now. So what I did was... I use that Nuffield membership because it was free virtually for staff. It's on mm-hmm. site. And I would disappear from my desk for two to three hours. And I did that 
for months and months and months. And my manager was okay with that. And you know why? Because she was a health and fitness freak. And that's the only way that she could really connect with me. And she's like, yeah, if you want to go to the gym, go to the gym. You can go for two, three hours. Don't rush back. You do that. But that was the only thing she really gave me in that moment because it correlated with what she understood in her mind. Yeah. I mean, and I think this... I think I'm just thinking, you know, what if you hadn't had that gym, Kalsama? Do you know what I mean? What if you hadn't had that kind of outlet for you to go and actually just kind of burn out, basically express yourself and let everything out? Like, if you didn't have that, what would you have done? It's almost as if like, well, the gym's there. You can use that because it's there and I use it and I'm a fitness freak, but only because it's something that I do. Um, But she wasn't letting you work from home. I think, and people kind of leaving you out like that—that that is bu- that is bullying. That's exclusion. And I mean, I know you you said as well you got bullied at school, and because of that, you always back yourself up, and you always like to stand up for yourself. And I I think the problem is with bullying. People often think it stops at high school. It doesn't. It people can be bullied throughout their whole life. Um, it's an adult problem, and I think especially in the context when someone has died, that is just appalling. Like absolutely appalling and say something just say something google is your friend google is your friend okay i wasn't the most social person and i left social events quite early because i have social anxiety around big groups it's something that i've had since my mum died and i struggle with that and i really have to push myself Mm -hmm. but like i really needed that support in that moment and i i only found it from individuals and you know another thing that comes to mind that i think is very important to mention is that day that my brother died i had a dinner party planned for so a couple of work colleagues in okay. that, on that office but obviously he was dying so I cancelled it without giving a reason I just sent the invite from Outlook and I was like something's come up I can't do this um but I'll rearrange and one person was like that's fine you live on the other side of London I wasn't looking forward to the drive let's re- review it another time he wasn't bothered some people didn't say anything but before I cancelled it I asked the person working in my team do you think I should just tell everyone in this invite because these are people that we trust it's a safe space yeah yeah that actually my brother's dying and that's why I'm cancelling the dinner it's not because I'm being rude or whatever um because I was someone that would leave social events early or maybe not go to all of the work social events because of my anxiety that I had was wanting to host this dinner because we were all foodies and it was just a few of us you know it wasn't the entire office so she Right, I realised how manipulative this person was. She paused and she's like, oh, they don't need to know that your brother's dying. Because, you know, she's a massive attention seeker. And that I think had I told everyone, they would have been really understanding and they would have understood more why I cancelled that dinner invite. But for her, I think it was the, it, the her reasoning was don't tell them because they don't need to know. It's got nothing to do with them. And I actually don't think she would have liked the attention that I might have gotten. Because if you tell people something like that and you're vulnerable, people automatically empathize or they want to sympathize or they want to help or they want to do something. But in that moment, I didn't, I wasn't very self-aware because I was so wrapped up in the fact that my... Of course, yeah. Brother, and it's not your job right. to be self-aware in that, in that point. She, yeah. I mean, you should have got first of all gotten better advice and secondly that that person who was so so selfish to say I don't think you need to tell them that's really I mean I think I mean it's completely up to you but of course it it would have helped if you told them and they would have known and maybe they wouldn't have tiptoed around you like they had because this is tiptoeing isn't it it's tiptoeing and excluding and and I think that hurt you more didn't it it really did because you know um 
it really saddened me and I didn't really realize what she had said in that moment I just went with it because I thought she was trust I could trust her but I realized I couldn't trust her and she listens to this podcast so she's going to realize that this is about her and I've never been able to say it to her face but yet since my dad died she still likes to fill up my dms with her generic condolences which I'm not interested in you weren't there when my brother was dying and you completely excluded me you never mentioned it and I remember the day that I came back that day when I returned she said you know because I wasn't very emotional and I wasn't crying I was a bit stoic I guess you could say my face um she was like, well, if it was my brother, oh, you know, I'd be so upset right now. I don't know how you can be, you know, like, because I didn't have emotion, right, in my face. So if it was my brother, I'd be really upset. Da, 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 da. Which is her implying, oh, you're not being very emotional and you should be more sad about it, about the it, situation. Yeah, I think from what you're saying, I think she's just gone about this entirely the wrong way. And I, and I really picked up what you said about these generic messages I think in like in general I think it's very British middle class thing to do just to kind of be very perform. I think it's a very much British societal thing to be very performative because you know of course when someone dies I'm sorry condolences that's all fine but I think actively not being there for someone and then turning around and acting as if you did nothing wrong and like making it about you like there's so many things that she did wrong yeah it was was all And when I reflected, everything was always about her and she just loved the attention. But now she's heard from Instagram that obviously, because, you know, I do the podcast. Yeah. And, you know, I talk about my guests and I've been talking about how I feel about my dad. She's, she, you know, something's happened in her life where someone close to her has died. And she's, I'm sorry, but I haven't heard from you since I left that workplace. Like, you know, I've kept you at a distance for a reason. And now you're filling up my inbox without any reference to what happened to my brother. But now you're, you know, and the message was very much about her. And that's why I didn't respond because it was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Da, 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 da. And then it was about her and her situation. No, I'm not holding the space for you. You can see what I'm doing on the podcast. I'm not inviting you into this space because you don't deserve it. I'm sorry for your losses at the moment, but I no, it's over. What we had back then is done and it's over. And I've learned from that situation. And it was it was you made it all about you and it's no longer about you. I hope you get the support and love that you need with what you're going through, but I can't help you. And I know people might be listening and thinking, okay, calm down. You know, you know what it's like when someone dies. No, you really hurt me in that moment. It's done. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you on that because as someone who has like kind of had difficult friendships and lost friends, if there, there are certain things that you just can't forgive. And I think that's a sad fact of life. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make the world, a bad place it just means that that person failed you and it doesn't mean you want them to suffer it just means that you cannot you can no longer be a part of their life and they shouldn't be a part of your life because it's what's best for both of you so it's just a number of consistent things where I felt like she could have been a better colleague and friend and she wasn't at one point with someone that worked in another team this is how bad we are in society about talking about grief and death she's like oh how's things going with you and I was like you know, I was feeling really sad that day. I was really down. It's only a few months into my grief. And I was like, oh, I don't know if you heard. I'm sure you did. But, like, my younger brother died. And she paused for ages. And she was just looking at me. And I knew she was trying to work out how to phrase whatever is going to come out of her mouth next. And she's like, no, I didn't actually know that. And 
I'm like literally crying in front of her face. But it was a lie. She knew. Every, most people in that office knew. Of course. Yeah, I mean, it would be quite quite surprising if she hadn't at that point. She must have, but obviously she did, didn't she? She did, and it, I think she wasn't expecting me to, like, because she asked how I was, and I, you know when you ask someone how they are? Some people are just like, yeah, I'm good, thanks, move on. But in that moment, I just sort of poured out my feelings, and I started to cry. And I was like, oh, I'm not too great. My brother died a few months ago, I'm sure you heard. And she just... I know that she knew, but also it was a part of uncomfortableness and awkwardness of not knowing what to say. And I think with workplace grief, we need to be better to our colleagues. We need to be better and nicer and more compassionate because it's not on. It's unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, people who... It, it benefits the work. This is why I don't understand. It benefits the workplace as well if you don't have people who are grieving. People who are he- mentally hel- healthy will work better. It's in the interest of both the worker and the employer. So, I, I, yeah, we really need to do better with that. But obviously your workplace didn't. And eventually no. you left, wasn't it? Um, you left, I guess, with a bang, it's, it says here. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I'm not going to talk in too much detail about that. But, yeah, I had a nice little party domino pizza party that we would regularly have in that place mm-hmm. we, we ate so much domino's pizza it's ridiculous <laughs> uh, um and you know we had a little party played music and it was just a small shingding or whatever but like um i sent an email and you know when you work in marketing and comms like memes are everything everyone uh, yeah i've heard that i've heard yeah, that. yeah yeah and when you work in advertising everyone has a certain type of personality blah, blah blah and so like i sent a nice farewell email thanking some people but obviously i think management found the meme to be unprofessional whereas the whole entire office laughed they loved it um but i think it didn't go down well with management so uh yeah i guess you could say i left with a bang but at the end of the day i was really outspoken some people didn't like that my manager personally didn't like that i think being a woman of color like you know she didn't have a lot of black or asian or minority other friends right um Mm -hmm, often mm -hmm. when she would organize events it's just all the white people were there and maybe one token person and I re- we had a real problem with her about that. But when you're the most sociable person in the office and likable for some of the most fakest things in life, like Prosecco and bottomless brunch and la-di-da-di-da, my ass, um, <laughs> no, no one's going to say anything in a white-dominated office. Like, yeah. they're not going to say that because people of colour don't bring their pers- real personalities into work. And after my brother died, I stopped checking my personality. I bring my whole self. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think... Um... I, th- I think I, I, re- I really resonate with that, especially that phrase you said, people of colour don't bring the personality into work. Because I think often when, when people of colour do do that, their culture comes in and people make, white people can make such snide comments about people's culture and people of colour's culture. Um, and it just makes them want to hide and not really want to discuss it and speak about it. And as well, you said, obviously, like your workplace was diverse, but it's, it sounds like pro- the higher up you were, the less diverse it was, which is really problematic. Yeah. I think people realise that um, when you want to make your workplace diverse, okay, you're not just filling in tick boxes. You need to have people at every single level, not just like up to a certain point and then just white. If it's all white executives, white managers, it that's was. problematic. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah, it was. And that was a massive problem there. They're all white. Yeah, yeah. And in London as well, right? Like, I've been yeah. to London. I-, I felt like I was in the majority in London, so I'm really surprised. Yeah. 
and no. to hear that so I'm I'm glad you left there you said the email didn't go down well but obviously I assume you don't care about that you said you you said what you had to say isn't it well I thanked everyone and it was really emotional because I did enjoy my time there but it was really sad and like I was moving on to a new job you know that was closer to home and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. blah 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 and you know and I don't know if I was just resented for being a highly paid contractor or what but I'm sorry I went to the interview and I showed up and being only woman of color in a slightly higher position um I'm not I'm not apologizing for that. I showed up to my interviews and I worked for it, right? I worked hard for it and I've got the experience and I was good at it. So, like, I just don't know if there's some resentment or whatever. And, yeah, the email didn't go down well with management. But I put them back in their box because we had words and I gave feedback to the HR director. And we had words and he apologized. And he said, you know what? I'm so sorry we failed you. And we learn. All we can really do right now is learn from where we have failed. Yeah. And we left it about. Yeah, and I think I'm really, really glad that you, well, you basically spoke your mind because I think the only the only way that these places will change is that we, if we do that. Um, and yeah. I'm so glad that you told the HR uh, person that. Um, but you, you obviously you left and you went to a new job. Um, and what happened then? Did, uh, was that transition easy? Um, and like, were you happier or? did you were you obviously still grieving over your brother um what about the grief I mean you talk about obviously the grief with your mum as well and how that kind of came back um around this time yeah because you know with my mum I did a lot of work as you'll hear from Mm -hmm. the penultimate episode I did a lot of work and I just felt like I'd been plummeted back into this familiar feeling of darkness. And I was like, this cannot be happening to me. I've worked very, very hard to build my life back up. Why is this happening? And, you know, I settled into the new job, but I wasn't myself. Yeah, that, and that's important. You need to be yourself, isn't it? No, and I wasn't. And I was just coasting, I think. And I, so it's like a lighted switched in you know my mind like I just flipped out in my mind I I was I was there physically but not really there I guess autopilot I think it sounds like you're an autopilot yeah yeah and you know after you've worked somewhere for so long and then something awful happens to you and then you go into a new environment where people don't even know you that comes with its own challenges because people don't actually know you and you have to make you have to do the work to join clubs and get to know people and be accepted into the new crowds you know the workplace is like being in school believe it or not um and I you know and I just I don't know if I was doing that work but I just remember there was a benefits fair and my boss said to me oh uh, there's a really good employee assistance program where they give you free ca- counselling on the EAP. We've got a contract with them. I think I might check it out. What do you think? So he passed the card to me and I could see they were giving away free counselling and it's short-term therapy. EAP, for those of you who don't know, employee assistance program. Most companies have them to support their employees for a really hard time. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take up the free therapy. Because of course. I couldn't, I couldn't afford it. So I thought, why not? Yeah, and therapy is so expensive. So you may you take every opportunity you can, isn't it? Yeah, and I, you know, I had not been in therapy for a while, so I was like, okay, let me do it. And you know, my boss passed me the number, so I did. I went and saw a therapist on the employee assistance program. But at the same time, I was doing my bereavement training, so I wasn't coping well, and I was doing this bereavement training at a major charity. 
And then I was enrolled at Metanoia Institute, which is a psychotherapy school. And for me, you know, after over a decade of working in tech and marketing and whatever, I my brother's death, I've learned so many things. I think he really, his death helped me make healthier choices in my life. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like it, he really did. Um, and obviously, um, you know, you're going through this bereavement training and um, you started to really grow. Um, and what what was really that moment where you decided, hang on, this is actually what I want to do. Um, I, I really, really want to change a career. Was it was it like a sudden thing or would you say it was more like gradual for you? It was, it was gradual. Really great question. Um, it was very gradual. I mean, the switch flipped. That was sudden. But mm-hmm. it was gradual because I, I didn't have a clue how I changed my career after being in something for so long. Um, I just started volunteering on a helpline, uh, which then could be converted to face-to-face bereavement support. And I just wanted to give back, really, because... I think I'd done all right on my own with my grief and I just I you know and I was lonely and I just don't want anyone else to feel that way and I just thought let me just give back let me help people because me helping others helps me yeah 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 and it it was so gradual I didn't know what was coming that's when my life changed I didn't know what was around the corner yeah it sounds like it was very altruistic you know like they help you you help them and I think that's such a beautiful kind of relationship actually um you can have and I think it all it's almost as if that kind of like that switch that you talk about was the catalyst it was like this this was always happening like it sounds like I think you're always going to make this change but the switch was like right the catalyst to I'm going to make a career change I can make a difference to people's lives and you've got so much experience as well fortunately and unfortunately of course but it means that you can really help other people and that's great and I suppose simultaneously you having this EAP therapy with a therapist you didn't like very much might have catapulted you in further isn't it because you didn't really like that therapist very much right no she was I went there for bereavement support for my brother but she was very bad at that I don't know if that's her field of expertise and we never really addressed it too much when I would bring it up there was a lot of silence and I realized this is out of her depth and then when you're studying at a psychotherapy school you're getting skills right this you're upskilling and you're learning actually how psychotherapists train and I wasn't just at any psychotherapy school I went to the one that was closest to where I live which happened to be the best psychotherapy school in London because it has such a great reputation but I didn't know any of that stuff because that's another world so when I was talking to her about this stuff I didn't really like her it took ages to get used to her and I think the struggle is that maybe she was a bit surprised how open I was because I just laid it all out on a table she didn't have to work you know it wasn't like getting blood out of a stone with me I was very very open but when it came to talking about race and diversity in that clinical encounter uh uh-uh she really fucked up um you know I'd often hear things like and I tweet it often if you follow me on Twitter I, I do indir- yeah I love yeah. your Twitter just want to interject <laughs> that Lo- please please follow her she's great love her Twitter <laughs> I indirectly mention her because she'd often be like well your classmates aren't going to thank you for bringing up diversity and racism obviously that's why they're not going to she actually next- say that yeah yeah she said they're not going to thank you for bringing that into the room oh my gosh but because that's it, so problematic it, isn't it and I don't even know if she realized what she was saying but 
and she was like, you know, you're so involved with this cause. What do you identify as? And I was like, I identify as a British Bangladeshi Muslim woman. And she's like, the cause isn't going to help you. It's hindering you. And, you know, it took me ages to work. That just kept playing on my mind. How dare you say that? Well, of course, it's like it's a part of my being and every fabric and society and how the society impacts me. How can you even tell me to ignore the cause? I can't ignore it. <laughs> no, of course you can. It's it's there, um, and I think I, I think this is because uh, I remember we we spoke about this in my episode as well about kind of white therapy. Like, thankfully, I've never had anything as bad as that, um, you know. But I have definitely had kind of comments like, "Oh no, do you really want to bring race into it? Is it really a race problem? Is it just kind of this constant downplaying?" And it's just like, "Oh my god, shut up! Like seriously, mm-hmm. let me speak." Um, mm-hmm. Um, and well, I'm really yeah. glad that you recognize that because I think a lot of people of color don't. I think a lot of people of color, right, they don't understand our problems. Therapy is too much work anyway. Therapy is for white people. I'm just going to leave. Uh, they do, absolutely. And yeah, we did talk about that in the episode. And I actually quoted you, and that went down so well with so many people. Therapy is seen as such a white thing. But it, as you said, I'm just quoting you. Um, yeah. if, it's done correct, if it's done correctly, it can really change people's lives. And um, 100% that is bang on so true because we don't question it but also I think she doesn't really understand racism and race as someone who's been a psychotherapist for a long time and when I talked about the BACP which is the accreditating body right Mm -hmm. she said to me well she got really defensive she goes why are you bringing the BACP into this it's and that's just so problematic like I just I mean I'm not I would like to say I'm surprised I'm not really um, but it shouldn't be happening in this day and age. And I, I, I think it just goes back to how we really need diversity training and training on how to kind of talk about, uh, particularly, well, I should really say for white people, on how to discuss race and how to discuss culture, because it, it's, it, like I said, it's an integral part of who we are and it's an integral part of your experience. So, um, yeah, that that's shocking. I mean, shocking and not shocking, I should say. Shocking because yeah. well, that's never it's really happened on. to me. But it's not on, yeah. Um, no. uh, but also not shocking because it happens all the time. Yeah, and if you log on to Twitter, you see all the psychotherapists and counsellors talking about it, mainly the people that identify as POC, counsellors and psychotherapists, because they talk about it. They've all gone through something on their training where race has just, you know, just been brushed under the carpet and you know they've realized a lot of their middle class white colleagues or students in training are racist as fuck and you know although i had a great time at metanoia you know the facilitators were second to none the teaching is fantastic i didn't enjoy my experience so much with my classmates because they were very silent on race issues and you know i'd gone to this therapist with bereavement and she wasn't able to help me with that and we often talked about race and she just wasn't having it. And she got defensive about me criticizing the BACP. But I feel like the BACP are the part to play. And I think they do try. But are they doing enough is my question. Because systemic racism in psychotherapy and counseling, it's woven into the fabric. It's a very European thing. And it's a business model. They're making so much money out of people. And oh, people yeah. are not getting jobs. Yeah, it's 100% a business model. And this just goes back to the core of how society works and how um mm. our kind of corporate neo-capitalist society it just doesn't work um it, it shouldn't it, it sh- that kind of model shouldn't come into things like therapy which is needed um it's a need like therapy is like a it's a healthcare need and i think um everyone can i think the thing is we we go in for a physical checkup right but we never go in for a mental 
Mm. You go in for a physical. Why don't we go in for a mental checkup? Or even I should really say like a like a mind kind of check in. You know, like that that should be normalized, and it's not. And it, it again, like it goes back to this whole because it's a business model, and people are making so much money from it. Um, the NHS waiting list. I, I mean, I don't have to tell you, Kalsama. It's like it's endless. You know, you mm. you'll, you you can be on it for years, and you won't hear anything for mm. mental health. So. Yeah, and isn't that mad when it's on the increase, like mental health, even listening to this podcast, the people that come on, all of you guys have had something to say about mental health, Mm -hmm. whether it's in the university student population or in the workplace or whatnot, it's do something about it, we need to start talking, and I just, you know, in that point in my life... I was enjoying my time at Metanoia, apart from being subjected to racism. Uh, <laughs> a bit of a pin in that, apart yeah. from the racism. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, this therapist isn't great, but I'm desperate and I need to speak to somebody. Yeah, well, I, I think props to you for reaching out and getting help at that time. Um, and I think you obviously needed it, isn't it? Because talking about it in your family, particularly being a Bangladeshi um, South Asian family, is difficult. I mean, you've often said, I mean, you've said just now, even um, today, that you're having conversations with your sister is very difficult. Um, and do you still find that even today, like having adult conversations with her, is it, is it still difficult? Has it gotten any easier? I think in those two years when my brother was sick and died, it was incredibly hard. But since my dad has died, it's become so much easier to communicate. You see, the thing is, you know, without going into the whole story, m- my older sister had a lot of responsibilities when she was growing up, and I was mm-hmm. one of them. Mm-hmm. I, was, I, was, I was one of them, and that's part of the, the issue, I think. So I let her have her moment when she lets off steam and says what she needs to say. It is very much tough love, and there's reasons for that. And really, she needs to take those, she should have taken up those issues with my parents, but she she just wouldn't. And, and you know, I can say to my sisters, I'm sad, I'm grieving. And, you know, I can do that. But I, I think I can only do that since my dad died and when my mum died. But with my brother, I was not able to have that conversation. Yeah. And, and I'm really glad. I'm re- Well, I'm really glad that obviously changed for you, um, that you, you could start having conversations with her. But um, I think that dynamic you mentioned is interesting. Like you, um, you just had a lot of responsibilities and you were one of them. I mean like kind of recognizing that was that difficult for you yeah so interestingly when I went to see that therapist she was quite good with family dynamics so she said to me um oh it sounds like the relationship you have with your sisters um when you came along you interrupted their life Mm. so I never thought of it like that it was like the penny had dropped I was like fuck yeah I did interrupt their life because I've heard it on the dinner table at Christmas on Eid and Easter about certain things that they would mention and stories about when I came along and I was like oh yeah I did interrupt their life when I came along and it wasn't hard it was more like a realization and I think that's why I react less when I speak to them and I let them have their moments when they're frustrated with me or you know they've got something to say or get off their chest because they don't seek therapy and it's only since my dad died that I've pushed them to certain resources and said have you tried this have you tried that and they're really you know as Bangladeshis like my family they're okay with talking and you know we're okay with talking and being sad but I think particularly with my brother issue there's a it's very contentious with my younger brother for other reasons because when my mum died we talked 
and we cried together and we were united and we grieved together it was all good but i don't know what happened with my brother and it's it's just a very complicated scenario yeah i i think i think i think your brother's a very unique case because well just because he was young and he hit his death um could could have been avoided and yeah it was yeah um and obviously his death had to be investigated as well i mean i mean what what was that like for you that must have been an extremely painful process and realization for all of you yeah so um i i didn't know that his death was investigated i didn't know that for two years oh wow that's a huge point yeah i only found that out after my dad died my sister you know she just randomly said oh yeah when they investigated his death i felt worse when i read the report and i was like excuse me what like what are you talking about and she goes yeah they investigated it and they did it so thoroughly because he was the first vulnerable person in the borough who didn't have a voice that died at the hands of the system so that's why they investigated it oh my gosh what a thing to find out yeah i couldn't believe it and she goes yeah so the i was like well what was the result and she said was his death avoidable and there's different levels and it was a clear yes that and what was that like when you find that out was it i mean did you kind on some level kind of know or were you just really shocked well i didn't know his death was investigated but i wasn't surprised when she told me that Mm-hmm. in that moment that the system had screwed up but to be honest it was in a moment that we were grieving for our father and it was soon after my dad's funeral that she dropped that in a conversation and I was like okay I know what the answer is do I even need to read the report because when I read the report after my mum's death you know I was the apology didn't make me feel any better so yeah was his death avoidable the result a clear yes it's the right it's the other end of the spectrum it's not even in the middle maybe yes whatever it was a clear yes how does that make me feel i don't know i kind of give up because i feel deflated i don't know what else to say i don't know what else we can do as communities to get our voices heard Uh, she's not going to show me the report is there any point me than reading the report when i know what the answer is (sighs) i i don't know yeah and i think i think that the it's it's gonna be more than one answer i think definitely we're gonna need a number of answers a number of solutions to this kind of problem because i i think and it all comes back to a lot of it comes back to privilege as well because you know it makes you think had you had your family been white would you have been treated differently i suspect very much so yes i think you guys would have got better treatment or been treated maybe more compassion if you were white um you know and this whole kind of issue of being disabled in a South Asian... I mean, being disabled is so stigmatised anyway, and if you add the culture and being South Asian on top of that in a British society, you you get all these comments that you wouldn't get if you were white. Like, I don't know, like, oh, well, you know, maybe, you know, you guys all didn't live together, or, like, if you you have such a big problem with it, go back to your own country, all these kind of things. And Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of the time, as a coping mechanism, South Asian people just say okay or they just very accommodating like your sister and and that's not necessarily your sister's fault it's like no we need to be accommodating we need to kind of you know fill fill in all the feedback forms and if if we accommodate they'll see us as more favorable and it's all about looking favorable isn't it and being fitting in and 
um, that just isn't right. If you if the system is failing you, you need to call out and say something because you the fact is you're there. You're not going anywhere, um, and nor should you just because of your if, if you're working class, if you're a person of color, anything. Um, and I think that is a huge problem in our community, Kalsima. I, I do think that um, I I hope I think we are speaking out more now. I hope we continue to do so. Um, but it, it's going to yeah. take time, isn't it? It's going to take time. It's going to take time. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of unpacking to do. And I think, you know, I'm I'm trying to understand my sister more. And I think she just likes to play by the rules because the way she sees it, if you don't, you're not going to get the answers you need. Um, and fine, fair enough, that's her way of being. But, like, I don't, you know, I'm not inside her head, so I don't really know. But... I can't spend too much time thinking about that because she has done a lot and I think it's very heavy to carry this stuff and to do that work because it is very draining to fill out those forms and to go back in time from beginning to end to, you know, find out what happened in these appointments and how he was looked after and what happened and, you know, this and that. You know, it's hard to go back to those points and be the representative for that person. It's very draining when someone you love has died and I think for her like her heart sank when she read the report and she said she felt worse and I I need to speak to her about it but when that will happen I don't know yeah I mean it sounds like you're on the right track here I think you're on the right route you're, it sounds like you're having more of these discussions with your sister it's really good and you, you guys are becoming a bit more maybe or at least you, you, you know, you're becoming more empathetic and sympathetic towards her, which is really important. Um, and I think that is a journey you will continue to go on. And I think it's really important that you do. Um, so that's, I think that's one thing, of course, that's maybe that's um, come out of both a combination of your brother and your dad's death. But I mean, what else would you say your brother kind of dying taught you, Kalsama? What was, I mean, you've, you've touched upon how you you made healthier changes to your life it eventually led to a, a kind of career change I mean what else did you take away from it you know it's a good question I I recall some time after my brother's death his room was cleared and they tidied his stuff and when I went to visit my dad like I always do there was a bag in the room and they're like oh you know my sister left this bag and in the bag was a picture of my dad and my brother and some t-shirts and I cried like I, I couldn't hold it back I cried like I cried like a baby and my dad turned around and he said to me it's okay that you're crying and that you feel this way but you have to know that he doesn't have to answer to God my dad being a Muslim right he doesn't have to answer to God we do it's us that has to answer to God in the end he doesn't so what I take away from it is that you know he was he was born non-verbal. My mum had him late in age. In those days, they couldn't detect Down syndrome and autism and other things. He, you know, my mum found out when he was born that he had these disabilities. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that as a family, you're not born with empathy or compassion. You're taught it within your family system and your family belief system. And I... You know, what I take away from that is, yeah, we have to answer to God. He doesn't. He is, I'm going to quote the, the cliche, yeah, he's in a better place. Um, 
but yeah it's that empathy and that compassion because when I was growing up people would just stare at you and they'd wonder what's wrong with him because he doesn't look like the rest of us um making those positive changes but for me it's the empathy and the compassion I wouldn't know what empathy and compassion is if it wasn't for my younger brother yeah um I think that's a huge huge lesson um to take away and I think as well um you're so right about this kind of belief system um that you grew up with and your family system and how that really tailors how empathetic and compassionate you are to other people um and I think I mean we've spoken a lot about the issues in the South Asian community but I I I think it's important as well that I think that the white community can learn a lot from us and that you know, I think we we are really compassionate when we want to be. We can be in our families, like we will do anything and we do it because we love our relatives. Mm. Um, and I think, um, especially being in a, in a country that doesn't necessarily support that, like Britain doesn't, as a society, I don't think really supports like family um, kind of compassion on a larger scale. Like we live in a very private society here that you know, you, you move out, you leave your home and then you have your own family of four or five. You know, it's very distant, isn't it? But in Asian families, it's, yeah. it's different. And I think, I think particularly with your brother being um, kind of nonverbal and autistic, that added to that, you were, you were willing to do even more for him. And of course, you all got swept up in your own stuff. But it's almost as if you came full circle. You know what I mean? Like he died and you all kind of relearn how to be closer and compassionate to one another again would that be would I be right in saying that yeah definitely my dad's death is an end of an era and there certain conversations came up about my brother's death that we didn't have in those two years but my dad's death marked an end of an era for us a, a huge chapter because when you become parentless it brings things to surface and conversations that you may never have had and how you act towards one another and yeah it's definitely yeah a full circle as you say we have done a full circle and I can't thank my brother enough unfortunately he was born non-verbal uh with down syndrome and autism but I can't like that empathy and compassion that you're taught when you're growing up like you're taught that you're not born with it you know what I mean and yeah we've done a full circle and I'll always forever be thankful to him for that as, as strange as that might sound yeah and I think I think no I, I, I don't think it's strange at all like I think it's perfectly normal for you to be thankful for that and for you to take that away um but of course I know you have lots of lots of favorite memories with your brother of your brother when he was alive um what would you say is your favorite memory Kalsama um he loved his music like he just loved music yeah and he went through so many radios and stereo systems you know my dad brought him so many stereo systems when he was growing up and even when he went into the care home like he'd always get a new stereo every year and he just loved putting his ear to the music he loved it just made him happy he'd dance and he'd rock back and forth and he'd laugh and he'd smile and he'd scrunch up his eyes and that was his happy moment. That was his happy place when he had music. He loved swimming as well. He loved to swim. And he loved the outdoors. And it was really nice to see that he just enjoyed life, just like the rest of us. He had his interests, just like the rest of us. He wasn't that any different to us. He had a voice. He had thoughts and feelings. He liked certain types of food. 
which kind of brings me on to the second memory. Uh, one day, me and my older brother were making like like sandwiches. My, my older brother's quite a good cook. So he was just, you know, making some sandwiches, making some food. And my younger brother, like, he came into the kitchen. And as my brother was plating up the food, he'd turn his back to the gas cooker. My younger brother just came in and swiped the food off the table and ran off with it. And <laughs> yeah. And it's um, it's obviously not something that you and I would do. Like, if we were sitting next to each other, it would be strange if I took food off your plate or just, you know, ran off with your food, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you, You'd have words with me about that. But with him, he just didn't have the concept of what was his and what <laughs> what wasn't his. And literally, my brother and me turned for one second and we were like, huh, where's all the food gone? And he'd literally so just, got, yeah, he'd just gone off with it. And it was almost very comical. And he often did that at Christmas parties when we'd be sitting with other people's families. And we'd be like, no, no, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to take other people's food. What are you doing? <laughs> this is your food in front of you. Don't take their food. Why are you touching their food? Uh, I don't blame him, Carlos, but I would, have done, I would have loved to have done the same thing and get away with it, to be honest. <laughs> he always Aww. did. It, it, it was just so funny. He always did that and he had no concept of like, what was his and what wasn't when it came to food and it was just so funny to me. It was always very fun, a funny thing. We would always laugh about that. Yeah. Oh well. I mean, it sounds like there's a wealth of memories there, Castle. You know, I, I, I really, I'm really glad that your brother did live a great life, and I'm, I'm so sad that it was cut short. It was the way it was, but it, I'm really glad to hear that he, he did all the things, and that he wasn't defined by. Um, you know his his disabilities and his illnesses you know he that he just enjoyed life anyway and I think I think definitely the mistake a lot of able-bodied people make and people who are kind of fit and supposedly fit well and healthy is that oh we often feel so sorry for these people and like oh look at them and look how sad their life must be and how hard it is and and actually I think that's wrong like I think we should mm. say look at what they're doing look at how they're still living their life that's great let's it's all all the worries for us to live our own lives as well just say hey it, that's just another person living their life and yeah I hope more people view disabilities like that I'm sure you'd agree yeah absolutely because you know pointing and staring and whispering I had a lot of that when I was growing up and I'm sorry but you guys need to stop doing that if you're curious or you don't know ask come over you know talk to that family or ask the question um and I think times are changing and people are you know they are you know people with disabilities and additional needs just live normal lives like the rest of us but there's still a lot of work to be done because people do point and stare because I remember a few days before my brother died I was outside with my brother and people were just staring at us from their cars so it still happens and they do pity you but please don't because they actually live much richer lives and we as able-bodied people we complain about our headaches but you know what when we've got a headache or we've got a tummy ache or we're not happy at least we can articulate the fact that we are able bodied and we you know that we're feeling sad today my brother could never do that everything was free sign language pointing you know picking up things through eye contact through touching and feeling he was not able to speak and tell us if he was in pain can you imagine what that would be like for us as able-bodied people that have these privileges because we do and I think we often take it for granted that we can think feel touch and be verbal <laughs> yeah yeah I think we do I completely agree because um you know I worked um I 
well, now I'm a carer, actually. I work for um, older people now specifically. But in the past, um, I had a summer job and I worked with, um, there's, a, there's a charity called Abelour in Scotland. They do amazing work with uh, disabled kids. And every summer they have like a summer club so that they, they you know, we all get trained and we take care of them. Um, you know, we take them to places and stuff like that. It's wonderful. And I remember thinking like, it was such an eye opener for me. And then I, I just remember thinking like, why didn't I learn about this at school? Why didn't I learn sign language? Why didn't I learn about different disabilities? Like, because that's what people did. As you say, if there was ever a person who is disabled or had a disability in our class, they were laughed at or they were pointed at. And I just remember thinking like, that's really rude. Why are they doing that? And then when I had this job, I was like, wow, like, why isn't, why aren't we taught this? We're just, and it's because society is geared around these are the other people. This is an other problem when actually that's just not the case they are a part of society and we need to be trained and we need to learn how to kind of well be around these people and actually just not point and stare just it's common courtesy isn't it it's, it's just common sense a lot of it compassion and it's yeah like don't be so judgmental you know just and that, as you say it's an education piece we do they do enough of that in education nowadays? I left education a long time ago, so I don't know how it works anymore. I would say but, no, personally. Okay. I don't think so. Not up here anyway. No, and I would urge anyone to kind of go, you know, they're not the other, we're not the other problem. Educate yourselves. If you're not doing it physically by volunteering or working in, you know, in a club or a care home, like you've just said, you know, you can read books about it. There's so many books, um, really great books. In fact, there's the Internet. Don't be so judgmental and pitying because people with disabilities, they live great lives and they do have a voice. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's our job to amplify those voices and um, do what we can to uplift and raise those voices as much as we can. Um, so I'm I'm. I'm really glad um, you've done this today, Kalsaba. Um spoken about your brother. It's been really, really brave. Um, and I, I just want to touch upon, these are kind of uh, topical things that, because at the time we're recording, um, me and Kalsaba just discussed this before. Um, obviously, we were, talk- we were going to talk about a couple of things. Um, the, the, the term BAME, Kalsaba, um, you did a poll recently, didn't you? What was that about? <laughs> Right. So, yeah, BAME. Who identifies as BAME? So I did a poll on Instagram and Twitter, but we don't have a lot of time. So I'm just going to talk about the poll that I ran on Twitter because they were near enough the same results. Yeah. So, so people, I mean, what are your thoughts? Do you like the term BAME? Do you identify as BAME? Um, I'm going to be honest. No, I don't like the term term BAME. Um, I mean, I've identified it as as myself before because I've had no other choice, but Personally, no, I don't like it. I think it's reductive. I think it's, um, you know, it just others us in a certain way. Um, no, so I'm going to be honest. I don't really like it. I don't know about you. Yeah, so um, I don't like the term BAME either. It seems to be an umbrella term where everyone's grouped together. So the poll was, should we dismantle BAME? And there were two options, yes or no. Yes, because we're not all the same. No, uh let's stand together and it was a whopping like 89 percent that voted for yes dismantle it which wasn't surprising and then the remainder no not at all 
no because we're not all the same but you see with me is that I will use the term BAME when, when I'm broadly speaking or people of colour or um, ethnic minorities when I'm broadly speaking. And the reason for that is it's so woven in the life that we live. You hear it everywhere. The government uses it. Charities use it. All workplaces use it. Yeah. You live and breathe and you hear it all the time. And sometimes by accident, I'll say BAME. I mean, I'm going to be honest, in the start of Bereavement or in podcast, I said I was cared very deeply about BAME communities. But what I mean is, uh, you know, I care about all minorities and, you know, the d- entire diaspora because we have stories to share, right? Yeah. With experiences to share. But I understand the frustration around BAME and that, you know, people voted 89% dismantle it, which then followed on from well if we do dismantle it what do we replace it with that's exactly the issue i completely agree because well you know obviously being bame is different to being white and that is an experience but i think people forget there's so many nuances between in the bame community there's first of all there's being black there's being there's been asian and asian can be broken up into south asian east asian and south asian can be broken up into indian bangladesh they're all such different experiences um, yep. And I think, it's, but yeah, as you say, its problem is BAME is so woven into the fabric of society. Everyone uses it. So we're kind of stuck with it. And what do we replace it with? Um, so I think going forward, really, we can keep on using it possibly. But if we start to educate people about the nuances, maybe perhaps it will become less of a problem to use that term. Yeah. And so then I ran this the poll again because mm. people want it dismantled. They want it <laughs> they want they want to get rid of it. I was like, if fame was replaced by the government and institutions, what would you like it replaced with? And there's four options. Ethnic minorities, POC, ethnic groups, more specific, for example, Turkish, Indian, Pakistani, uh, Jamaican. The results are more specific one with a fifty seven percent. Mm-hmm. Co- closely followed by ethnic minorities 24% then followed by POC 14% and then followed by ethnic groups 5% yeah I'd say that sounds about right I, I have to say I'm a bit surprised about the ethnic minority being right. second where did you think it was gonna go I thought it would be third because I thought it'd be ethnic minority then ethnic groups because for one reason I hate their term ethnic I cannot stand the term ethnic I think ethnic again is such a reductive term like people basically use it for anything that's not white and I'm just like what does this even mean everyone has an ethnicity everyone has an ethnicity so I mean I yeah I just I mean I'm again I'm not like having a go at people who do use this or anything like that I'm just saying personally I don't like it um but I I definitely I agree with the the first result I don't know about you like the 57 percent like more specific kind of um terms because that's what we are i mean that that would be the most accurate i think wouldn't it yeah absolutely because i have said it time and time again i am british bangladeshi muslim if that isn't being specific i don't know what is <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah that's yeah. what i say to people i'd say well i'd say now probably scottish um i'd say british slash scottish indian um was born a hindu but i don't really practice hinduism myself so i mean again it's just better to say what it is um but again if you're talking in broader terms yeah it's difficult so i'm really glad you you brought that up actually and we decided to discuss that because i think that's super super important um especially during these contentious times right now with the environment we have um and all the discussions going on right now following well 
the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and stuff. And I know we don't have much time. Um, so very briefly, I mean, I just wanted to get what your thoughts are on, well, what basically what's happening right now. So for me, it's about the reactions from the South Asian community to Black Lives Matter and Blackout Tuesday following the murder of George Floyd. Um, I was inundated with a lot of DMs on Blackout Tuesday from the grief community. And secondly, I was tagged in a lot of Twitter threads, particularly from the Pakistani community, talking about colorism and issues within the Pakistani community. Not sure why I got tagged in that. I don't identify as Pakistani, I'm Bangladeshi. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't make much it, sense, all right. Yeah, yeah I was like, thanks for tagging me in your issues, but I don't know what you're talking about. So like, I broadly knew what they were discussing. Um, so I was getting a little bit, you know, it was really intense those two weeks. And I think for me, um, performative, I don't like that. I mean, jumping on the bandwagon, I don't like that. And I'm not making accusations of people, right? I think it's great that we're talking about anti-blackness within South Asian community, but South Asia is huge. And we only ever hear from two or three countries in South Asia. I never hear from the Afghans. I never hear from the Tamils. Like, it's a huge place. Um, so I feel like sometimes we're speaking on the behalf of people, speaking, you know, for an entire continent. Do we really understand that entire continent when actually that we have a lot of minorities and marginalized communities within our countries. And I can honestly say, as a Bangladeshi, we are the subordinate of South Asia, one of the few that are seen as the subordinate, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I feel like the South Asian narrative is stolen often. And, you know, particularly me growing up, I received a lot of racism, not just from white people, but I'm, I'd hope I don't upset anyone by saying this, but I'm going to be honest, from the Pakistani community as well, for skin colour and other political matters. So I didn't appreciate being tagged in those threads. Great, let's talk about colourism, but <laughs> black communities already know what colourism is. It impacts the whole entire world. We all know what colonisation is, and yes, let's keep having these conversations about anti-blackness within our communities, but start also talking about how we minoritize and marginalize our own communities in and around South Asia because a lot of that happens in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and other countries and quite frankly for me I just found it all a bit performative bandwagonery doesn't yeah. it's reductive I don't get it yeah I think I I'm so with you I really really I'm so with you on all of that because well as you know I've been very vocal on social media about um, anti-blackness and needed to tackle the communities but even before that I'd like to say okay I didn't do enough but I was very aware about or at least in the last year I've become really aware about my own privilege as a mm. South Asian Indian Hindu I am the mi model minority and I know that and I'm extremely aware of it um, and I've called my family out on it multiple occasions and I've got in trouble for it um, you know because you're absolutely right we we need to also address the the racism and xenophobia we have towards marginalized communities in, in our own countries towards Hindus towards Muslims and Hindus towards p people of lower caste like Dalits and um, people getting persecuted so 100% like I, I, I do think there's a hypocrisy there of us you know not really paying attention to issues in our own community and then suddenly hopping on the bandwagon at the same time I think 
we obviously, and I think you you definitely get this, like we need to deal with these issues as ourselves, as our own community and don't burden that on the black community because the black yes. community know, know about all of this. They already know about colours and they already know about anti-blackness. I don't think us as a South Asian community, and I'm saying South Asian, I know as general, but you know, as Bangladeshis, Indians, um, Pakistanis, we shouldn't go to the black community and be like, we have all these issues too, look. Like, <coughs> excuse me, we need to... We need to sort out these issues ourselves and, you know, do that and simultaneously, but separately, tackle anti-blackness, be there for our, our black friends um, and for our black community and recognise um, the issues that they're going through. So I completely agree. I think if we can just separate the two and deal with our stuff on our own and, and let's not burden our black friends, I'm going to say that as a, a message to the South Asian community and a message to... Well, people like me, you know, if, if you're Indian or if you're, you know, you're Hindu and or you're from a predominant, uh, pre- predominant country in South Asia that's always spoken about, lift up those people that aren't, guys. Like, you know, we are part of the problem. So, um, yeah, I'm really glad you brought up Kalsama and I'm really glad we spoke about this because I think it's very topical at the moment. Um, and I, I'm actually going to correct myself as well. I said the death of George, George Floyd. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct myself and say it, he was murdered. It was the murder of George Floyd, as you said. It's it's sprung up so so many things um and i'm really glad about that so yeah um south asians let's do better um let's recognize issues in our own community and let's not burden the black community with our own issues no because it's not fair and we shouldn't be speaking for them they don't want us to speak for them sit down and listen yeah i can listen and reflect yes yes exactly (laughs) and that's definitely what i've been checking myself on as well like you know, yeah, I've been posting all Black Lives Matter stuff. I've been going out in the community and putting up posters, but all, I've also just been sharing stuff from other Black artists and stuff, just trying to amplify the voice. Because it's not yeah. about me. It's not about me or yeah, you. It's, it's about them. Yeah, there we go. That's the society we live in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Maybe. Um, I don't know if we. Uh, I I know you've touched. We touched upon this just before, Kalsama, but obviously we've got the Great Finals Challenge. Um, I know you said that you're not born with empathy and compassion. Your brother taught you that. You'll never forget it. Like, are there any other things you're grateful for? Yeah, I just want to say in that moment that this is it. This is the last episode of season one of Bereavement Room. And I'm just grateful to everyone, the entire BR family that contributed to the making of this podcast. It's come to places that I never thought it would be. And I just want to say everyone's names um, and I uh, to say that I am grateful to every single person. It's a bit cheesy, but I think it's important to remind everyone that who is part of this podcast and absolutely and made it happen. So I hope I don't forget any names. So Andrea Lungay, Tasneem Chowdhury, Nick Watt Marawat, Lydia Akoble, Vaishnavi Ramu, Amira Kazi. Siddharth Nigam, Amo Mehta, Adrian Rowe, Kajal Desai, Kerry Pugh, Sue Giri Airy, am I missing anybody? Henna Shah from Charity So White, <laughs> Henna Shah, Kawinda Sindinsa, Lakani Chowa, Linda Smith, and Darwin Dave. And that's it. Yeah, um, well, yes, a massive, massive thank you to everyone who's contributed. Um, you guys are also brave. Kalsama, you're extremely brave for doing this, and this is such a pioneering thing you're doing. So 
massive pat on the back and well done for you for doing this. It's so needed. It's so, so important. Um, I personally just want to say I loved being on this and I did it at a time where I really needed it. Um, so, yeah, I think this kind of thing is really important. Um, and I think my condolences for what you've been through. You've had a you've had a really hard time these last few years, but you've you've literally just um, kept going, and that's amazing. Um, and here's to your brother and to the life that he had. I'm going to end the show with a gratefulness message from Vaishnavi for her friends and family. And before we go to her gratefulness message, I would just like to say a massive shout out. Thank you, Vaishnavi. You're amazing. Thanks for holding the space for me today. To all of my listeners, I have taken on board your feedback. I've read all your letters and DMs. When we return in September for season two, we will run with the usual format but there will be a slight adjustment to the theme. We've got an absolute stellar lineup of guests. So until then, I want to wish everyone a peaceful summer break. Enjoy yourself, but stay safe. As always, thank you for listening. I was your guest today, Kulsima Ali. I'm very grateful for my family during this lockdown i must say i'm very grateful for them at the moment i think we've all really come together and helped each other um and i'm very grateful for i'm gonna say my school friends as well um i think my school friends have really uh, been there for me off late and i'm super glad particularly in a year where i had a difficult time at uni um so yeah I, i'd say those two things i'm extremely grateful for